1: Ladies and, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon from beautiful Berkeley. Welcome to our program today. Journalism on China and US-China rela- relations. The view from Washington, Beijing, and Berkeley. My name is Bak Chan. I'm a board member and past president of the California Alumni Association Chinese Chapter or CAA Chinese Chapter for short. We are the sponsor of today's event, along with the Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. For those who are not familiar with us, the Chinese chapter is a descendant of the Chinese Student Club formed about 100 years ago to help local Chinese students overcome social barrier while attending UC Berkeley. It is one of the oldest and most active chapters of CAA's 75 alumni clubs. In addition to organizing numerous events in the past, the Chinese chapter has, along with our sister organization, the UC Chinese Alumni Foundation, endowed over 35 scholarships, which are awarded every year to deserving students at Cal, by far the most given by any individual or organization at Cal. The Chinese chapter was uh, awarded Uh, chapter of the year six times by the CAA. We continue to sponsor social and professional events on topics that support our members and those related to Chinese culture, current society, and China's increasingly significant role on the world stage. One of those events is the highly successful annual Berkeley China Summit, and we'll love to see you there this fall. Today, we have about 500 registered attendees, combining the Chinese chapter and Berkeley Journalism RSVP sites, showing just how important this topic is to many of us. Everyone here is aware of the heightened economic and political tension between the United States and China, manifesting itself most notably in the pandemic blame game, political sabotage, and ongoing trade war. One of the worrisome developments recently is the rampant anti-Asian crime uh, in this country, which could well be the byproduct of the uh, negative perceptions of China as a nation during the pandemic and by association Chinese and Asians as a people. This phenomenon is often linked to the discourse of politicians and media organizations who might also hold the key to uh, promoting greater relations with the between people and nations. To help us navigate the complicated but critical international relationship between the U.S. and China, we are extremely fortunate to have joined us today with two of the foremost journalists and foreign correspondents, Dean Gita Anand of Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism and Mr. Edward Wong of New York Times. Among the things they will discuss is the landscape of journalism in China. What role the government has in media coverage over time and biases that influence how American journalists over uh, cover China and other countries. Gita and Edward will uh, explore how the journalism, uh, how the journalists, uh, how the, the prism through which foreign correspondents would view Uh, coverage of other countries can limit their ability to understand what's really happening in the governments, cultures, and daily lives of the people. They will also discuss U.S.-China policy, how it is evolving, and the influence of journalism in international affairs. Gita Anand is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author. She wrote the nonfiction book, The Cure, about a death fight to save his kids by starting a biotech company to make a uh, medicine for the untreatable illness, which was made into a Harrison Ford movie, Extraordinary Measures, in 2010. She worked early in her career in the Boston Boston Globe. Uh, Most recently, she worked as a foreign correspondent for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. One of the favorite and fulfilling assignments in her career was spending nearly a decade in India, the country where she was born and raised. First as a foreign correspondent for the New York Journal and then uh, for the New York Times. She began teaching at Berkeley Journalism in 2018 and quickly rose to be the dean of the school last year. Uh, The school has uh, just embarked on an exciting new academic program to develop the next generation of journalism students interested in reporting on China. The objective is to improve breadth and quality of journalism written about China by offering special relevant training and possible student scholarships. I'll have more uh, uh, details for you at the end of the program, but uh, without further ado, let's welcome Dean Annen, and uh, she will introduce uh, uh Mr. Edward Wong in a minute. Uh, Dean Ahnen.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much Fach. Thank you so much for uh, inviting us to this event. This was your idea and we are so thrilled to be here. Um, let me introduce Edward Wong. Um, he's a diplomatic and international correspondent for the New York Times who reports on foreign policy from Washington. He has spent most of his career abroad, including nine years in China, as the Beijing bureau chief. He ran the New York Times' largest overseas operation, which is in China. Um, He holds dual master's degrees in journalism and international affairs from none other than the University of California at Berkeley. He has studied Mandarin Chinese at the Beijing Language and Culture University, Taiwan University and Middlebury College. He was born in Washington DC and grew up in Alexandria, Virginia. And we are very proud at Berkeley Journalism that he's alum, not only an alum of our school, Um, But he is also on our advisory board. So welcome, Edward. It is such a thrill to have you here um, as an alum of the school and also a former colleague of mine at The New York Times.
2: Thanks, Gita. And I know it was was great working on the international desk at the same time when you were in India and I was in China.
0: I do remember those days fondly. Um, So let's just dive right in. I think everyone here wonders what are conditions like for a reporter covering China. What are things? What are the conditions on the ground for journalists in China?
2: Right. Well, I would say that people who have spent a long time in China, journalists who have spent many years or even decades there, say uh, often compare to pendulums. Sometimes they'll swing towards um, looser conditions, more opening by the government, allowing foreign journalists to work more freely. There are other times it swings toward a tightening. Right now, we're in a period of tightening that I would say probably began shortly, sometimes shortly after the 2008 Olympics um, and has gotten gradually tighter and really uh, increased a lot under um, the current government run by President Xi Jinping, um, who's also the head of the Communist Party. But um, The Chinese government will say that they have reasons to tighten up controls on journalists. And part of their argument is that it's it's because the Trump administration in the last year or two really um, tried to uh, limit some of the uh, foreign journalists from China who are working in the U.S. And um, and so like the uh, Chinese government at one point decided to expel some of the largest news bureaus in China, which include the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, expelled most of the journalists for those bureaus. And there's only a handful now remaining in China, only one for the New York Times actually. So conditions are tighter. um, And the U.S. officials, both in the Trump administration and the Biden administration have said that, um, criticized China for these tighter conditions and have said that their own measures against Chinese journalists were simply in reciprocity for what China had been doing for a long time against um, American journalists there. So, so it's, we're definitely in a mode of greater control right now. And within China right now, the security services have maintained greater scrutiny over foreign journalists working there and over the Chinese journalists who try and work alongside them in these news bureaus. Um, I know that when I was leaving China as bureau chief in late 2016, a lot of um, Chinese journalists were being interviewed or interrogated by security officers just to ask about the activities of their Western colleagues, for example. So, um, and we've seen other, you know, detentions, various detentions of some, some of the Chinese journalists who worked there um, for Western organizations.
0: How does this affect the stories um, that uh, the foreign media is telling about China? How does such a severe restriction on the number of people there affect the stories they cover?
2: Um, I would say, uh, I mean, there's different ways in which it influences coverage, I think. I think, one, it obviously makes journalists more um, skeptical about any sort of about motivations of the Chinese government, the Chinese officials. It, I think it makes them... Um, you know, wonder what, whether the government's trying to hide things, like why would they be expelling journalists um, in mass numbers? Why are they limiting uh, access to certain parts of the country? Um, So it influences the mindset, I think, of the journalists and of how they perceive what the government might be doing across its areas of policy. Um, Then, obviously, Without having journalists on the ground in China, you get a much more limited perception of what's going on. And and the stories start becoming more limited in range. You you encounter less people in your ordinary lives who might bring up details of life there in China. You um, focus a lot more on what Chinese media, um, different kinds of media are writing about China because, and also on what people are saying on social media, because they're outside the country um, looking in through these electronic prisms rather than being there on the ground. So there's a self-selection of stories in the, of sort of uh, topics of interest um, and of the, of the way you're approaching these topics through that, because it's very focused on the internet and on watching social media and other types of media. Um, there's just less, serendipity in running across stories and in sort of understanding the finer details of daily life there.
0: What's an example of a story that you did uh, when restrictions were looser that you can't imagine someone coming up with now?
2: Um, I would say that, for example, one of my last trips, uh, long trips in China was in late 2016, in the fall of 2016, when I did spent two weeks driving across, um, Western Sichuan, um, in a area that's very heavily Tibetan that the Tibetans call the calm region. And, um, and I found it fairly easy to just spend time in towns and talk to people and check into hotels. And, you know, we just drove to different places and it gave us a sense of life out there. And we did, you know, various different types of stories from out there. Um, including some stories just about you know what life was like in these towns and in the villages and among nomads, things like that. Um, I think today, a uh, reporter undertaking a journey like that would run into lots of difficulties from security officers out there. And in fact, a colleague of mine, uh, Steve Myers, who's now the bureau chief there in China um, and has been expelled, um, he tried a trip to a Tibetan area a few years after I did. And he ran into difficulties and had to return to Beijing. So he ran into difficulties from the presence of security officers. Hmm.
0: Um, You and I and even Bach have been talking about just how important it is for um, reporters covering a country to have a base of knowledge about the country, to be writing from a knowledgeable and nuanced point of view. And I was just wondering, during your years covering China, what... um, your experience was with the knowledge base of other foreign correspondents covering China? You know, how well do they know the country and the culture?
2: Right. I would say it ranges, um, though There, I have perceived a shift in this. So I think that in an earlier period, um, say some years before 2008 when I arrived there, there's a large number of correspondents who had had no, not a lot of background in China before they arrived. They might have been sort of, the classic model of foreign correspondent where you did postings around the world for several years at a time. And then the editor sent you to different countries. And, you know, there was a mindset, I think, among sort of an old school way of doing foreign correspondence where like, oh, if you don't really um, have ties to the country, then you're coming at it with more, a more (laughs) objective uh, lens or that you're um, (laughs) a sort of fresh look at the country. I think that attitude has changed now. Um, I would say that it's, I would say it's definitely changed. And During my time there from 08 to, um, you know, the end of 16, I saw a lot more correspondents coming in who had um, a deep knowledge base about China. There were already obviously some who had been there even for decades who spoke amazing Chinese, um, you know, foreigners who weren't Chinese or weren't necessarily ethnic Chinese, but spoke amazing Chinese and understood the political system, the social system, the economic system very well. Um, my colleague, um, Chris Buckley, for example, is one of those who he studied um, for many years in China before he became a journalist. Um, and, and so we saw more uh, people who had studied in China and studied the language and studied the culture and the history wanting to become journalists. I think more news organizations were willing to hire this type of person. And they also understood the importance, I think, of language ability. And they were more willing to hire this type of person, even on the ground in China, rather than having them spend time for years like in New York or sort of, you know, learning the ropes in a New York newsroom before sending them out to, to China or to India or to um, France or wherever. So I think we, we we've seen more news organizations hiring this type. and I think it's a good, I think it's a good um, change.
0: What's led to that change?
2: Um, I think there's several things. I think editors just have an idea that this type of person brings greater nuance to coverage. Um, the I think because I have of that- one
0: thought on that. I think the inter. This is my thought, having been in India for ten years, okay. and sometimes accused by my editors of not having a fresh eye. That I. Mm-hmm. You knew too much about India, and right. I think that the internet has changed it too. Like the idea mm-hmm. you know, before if people only in the US were reading these stories, mm-hmm. then you didn't get pushback on stories that were um, not very sophisticated or you know just didn't reflect the reality on the ground, but now with people in. China, well, especially India, though, reading right. these stories that we would get so much pushback um, and such feedback on the mm-hmm. stories. But anyway, that was just no. My I thought, agree. But-
2: I think that's completely relevant. I think social media has changed things. And I think that in India, you have noticed India, especially, there's like a very strong um, Twitter presence, for example, of a lot of Indian <laughs> yeah. readers, um, but influencers and as well as people who have smaller followings, I really. Um, you know, scrutinizing stories by Western reporters. And in China, you also have that. Um, The thing that makes it a bit more complicated in China is that there's also an element of, you know, you can't figure out, like, sometimes there's government paid uh, employees who are, who are there out there on social media, (laughs) criticizing reporters or um, for their stories. And it's, And it's part of the propaganda apparatus, um, which I don't know if India also has anything like that. But in China, that's definitely part of the system. So you're trying to discern what's legitimate criticism or legitimate commentary and what's not. And I would say that one of the things that I think a lot of Westerners misperceive about China is they actually overplay. Like, I think that that propaganda apparatus is there and that it's an important element of how the government and the party operate. But I also think that There's a very strong sense of nationalism among ordinary Chinese that's not necessarily tied to propaganda um, and that they legitimately feel nationalism or patriotism and that they legitimately feel love of their country, of their, um, you know, of the country grew up in and that their parents and and other ancestors have spent time in and that they are offended or that they feel that Western coverage is too Critical of China, I do think that that exists at a legitimate grassroots level, and not just um, it's not just a feeling being pushed by the government. For example,
0: um, so I'm going to weave some of the questions that we've gotten from the audience into some of my questions now. Though I will be asking you audience questions too at a later point, but. Here's one that that we got quite a, a few questions around, and that is just, are journalists, are Western journalists too critical of the Chinese government? And is there something about the lens through which they're viewing China that might make them too critical of the Chinese government? Like, how do you see it?
2: Right, I think that's a, I mean, that's a good question. It's one of the questions I think that arises the most in discussions like this and in conversations I have. Um, I think that there are time, there are moments when um, first of all I think that the overall framework by which a lot of ger- western journalists do approach China is from their own background of having grown up and been acculturated in a western a sort of democratic country with um, you know so-called western liberal values and that partly it's a self-selecting crowd journalists go into journalism because they believe in things like a free press and in the practice and what a free press does and in the importance of freedom of speech. So when they encounter an authoritarian system, there is a reflexive reaction against a system like that because it, in a way it's a very foundational threat or very foundational oppositional approach to to what the journalist has, has fashioned their career around and their belief system. Um, and so I I do think that that's a lens that's very difficult, I think, for Western journalists to divorce themselves from when they're approaching a system like China's and China's the large, you know, there's no larger authoritarian country than China and it's had many successes as well as failures in its, in its years, um, uh, in its decades under the party. And so, um, the, so I think that that's a lens through which journalists come to China with, um, and I think that sometimes, you know, there are, you can make the argument sometimes they skew too much towards saying, oh, here's an authoritarian system that's imposing its will on people. And it's and the stories have embedded in their language that this is a bad thing or it's a negative thing. And so I think one example is that when the pandemic broke out, um, there was some coverage of China which said, oh, China's taking these very extreme measures to control. Um, the spread of the virus Um, in Wuhan. It's like locking up apartment buildings. It's some people stay put. People have to um, get food delivery from the government. They can only send one person out at a time to get things. These very extreme measures that, I mean, that from the, in our, from our perspective, it appeared extreme until the virus reached our shores and spread all over the U S and other countries. And then in those moments, then there was a lot of critical coverage, say, of some governments in the West, including in the U.S., whether it's the federal or local governments, for being too lax in their approach towards control of the pandemic. And then I think at that moment, then there was more of a questioning of, oh, did China um, didn't manage to tamp down the virus, even though they didn't have a vaccine? And there are all these images from the summer, last summer, of large crowds of people gathering because the virus had been... Sub- had. Been tamed, or the spread of it, and so I think then there was a questioning of whether um, of the earlier narratives about sort of mm-hmm. whether China had been too extreme in controlling the virus. So, um, so I do. That's an example I think of where there's been a bit of self reflection. I think of how those earlier methods of control by China were were covered.
0: How do these narratives get established? Through which. Western journalists view countries like China and how hard is it to change them? Have you seen the dominant narrative about China change during a time you've been covering it and what events lead it to change?
2: Um, I mean, I do think that, as I said, the, um, the sort of cultural background that journalists bring to this, as well as their own, like, embedded, sort of like the their need to re- to support and reinforce freedom of speech and freedom of press is an important factor in all this. And, and that's something that I support. Like I personally believe in freedom of press and freedom of speech and believe these are important functions of important for society to function. Like um, and so um the I would say that there has been a shift, I would say, to some degree in the perception of China and the authoritarian system that you know, it runs under and it's governance model. And I think that one of the changes is that there's more of a questioning of, I think before there was always this idea that this might be doomed to failure, that there might be a collapse. That's, I mean, there's like one sort of China watcher who wrote this book, The Coming Collapse of China, which wrote it many, many years ago, like more than a decade ago, and it's, it hasn't come true yet. So the um, there's always there was always this idea, I think earlier, that, oh, the system will collapse because it's a house of cards, like it's a Potemkin village, that type of idea. Um, And I think that was heavily influenced too by what happened with the Soviet Union in 19, from between 1989 and 1992. Mm. So, um, and what happened in Eastern Europe. Um, I think that was the only model that people had, that dominant model people had in their minds to apply to a place like China. But then I think, you know, from 08 onward, Both because of what happened, what's happened in China, but also because of what's happened in the with in the West and with American governance, things like the Iraq War, the economic, the financial collapse in two thousand eight, you know, perceptions of what President Trump represented, all of these things. I think there's been a greater questioning of you know those earlier assumptions that the China model was doomed to failure, and that there now, in fact, I think that when you look at discourse around China, there's this idea that China is this behemoth, that it's this Leviathan that is out there and will dominate the world, and that the U.S. is actually on its back foot now and trying to regain its posture, regain its ground in the world, um, rather than, oh, the China model is doomed to failure. Like That perception, I think, is, is, has been buried underneath these new perceptions of the system there. Um, but I'm also curious like about your experience with India and covering India and sort of like what some of the narratives were dominant narratives were there and how, (laughs) whether you perceived a shift in those narratives over time.
0: Um, I remember when I went to India in 2008 and in the years leading up to it, the the narrative was India is the next China. (laughs) And India was like poised to grow. Um, And uh, I got there and I found that the growth rate was slowing down in fact it had been nine and it was eight and it was seven and it was six mm-hmm. and it was five um and i was actually working for one of the dominant western newspapers that had that caught on to india's growth slowing and the flaws in the system that were not that were going to make it not be the next china at least not economically So the Wall Street Journal started doing a series called "Flawed Miracle" about India, Um, and the New York Times at the time did a a series called um, "India's Way," which was about it may seem like it's not happening, but India has a particular way of doing things. Anyway, but that dominant narrative of India being the next China slowly, you know, took several years to prove itself wrong. (laughs) Um, But it, but it often takes a few years after the reality for the perception to catch up with the new reality.
1: Um,
0: uh, But it's sometimes (laughs) hard to change editors' minds um, Mm -hmm. about the new reality because people have latched onto a prism through which they're viewing a country and to a particular narrative.
2: Right. I have to say, I think we talked about this um, earlier before this talk started, that I've been fortunate in the editors that I've had at the times during my time in China, because many of them had come to the editing with China experience. Like they themselves have been China correspondents so, and lived many years in China and knew the language and the people very well. And so they had a much more nuanced approach to China than an editor with very little of that experience might've had. Of course, any good editor, any skilled editor will trust the correspondence and will get input from the correspondence on the ground. But you know, every now and then I know correspondents have run into editors that want to impose their vision of things on and then there's there's a lot of back and forth then when that happens and you've you've probably experienced that yourself
0: yeah i'm impressed that i think that actually coverage coverage of china is leading the way just in being more nuanced and um having more journalists with experience in understanding of chinese affairs Um, we're catching up in the rest of the world because uh, I, I didn't find too many of the foreign correspondents uh, in India had did, had did not have experience um, covering India before and didn't have knowledge of the language um, or history or culture um, so so that, I thought that was that was sad and disappointing but I know that that's changing and I know we have just discussed why that's changing um, and that's because you know there's people are reading coverage in in these countries and who know about it so the challenge then as a foreign correspondent is to write stories that are interesting to an important and relevant and resonant to a western audience as well as an audience in asia did you find that to be difficult
2: um it was a little once um you realized that you were trying to serve audiences around the globe and i think that this is something i changed like when you and i were at the times it was around those years, I think, when they really made a big push to um, have a more global reach. Um, and it it does become a little bit difficult because you have to think of how much explanation you're doing in stories. Do you assume the reader, what kind of knowledge base do you assume the reader comes to a story with? And um, and obviously, I think that when you're writing for an American audience, they'll know a lot about certain things. I like don't know a lot about U.S. politics, but, you know, with China or India or New Zealand, for example, there's a lot of things that they're very unaware of, and they have a lot of stereotypes of. For example, I think one a lot of readers, I've come or Americans I've come across think China is in complete police state. Like they think everything you do, everything someone does in China is completely monitored, and that you can't go anywhere without the permission of you know security officers, or that if you do try and go somewhere, they're watching. Which is absolutely not the case, and even now their foreign correspondents, for example, can roam around and not be watched constantly. So I think that you're, you have to sort of explain these countries to a reader that comes at it with these stereotypes. But at the same time, you know, there might be um, readers in China or in Taiwan or in Australia or in Greece who already have like a deeper understanding of these countries and societies. And, and then they might find, you know, certain lines or paragraphs of writing to be completely banal. I don't know, I don't have a good answer for how to juggle that.
0: Yeah, no, 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 I don't either. Um, For example, when, um, and this probably happens in China too, but when most um, Westerners um, or foreigners arrive in India, they find it impossible to understand the local papers because the local papers have no context paragraphs and no background and are just talking about the political parties and acronyms and the politicians often by their first names without even their last names. Mm -hmm. So again, there's no need for an Indian audience to explain any context, right? So how do you, without seeming to be...
2: And we had... mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. One thing I wanted to say was that some of these larger news organizations like the Times, they what they tried they tried to do is for example in 2014 or so at the time set up a Chinese language website. So part of it was for example, there have been editors there, like um, some of my colleagues Ching Ni and Jonathan Ansfield have tried to get um, stories or commentary written by Chinese directly in Chinese and publishing those on the website. So I think there's certain ways in which some media organizations try and serve the needs of audiences in those countries of course the times website became blocked very quickly in china um and so only a small number of readers can reach it through various means um and you know in india i know that they had a blog um sort of like a a the times has a specific blog going that was more aimed i think at people who understood more about india than your average reader it seemed like
0: yeah for a time both um uh, the new york times and the wall street journal had um quite robust blogs within the countries, Mm -hmm. within India. Right. Um, Let me just ask you um, how the increasingly strained relationships between the two countries, between the U.S. and China, has affected um, your ability and journalists' ability to to have relationships with Chinese sources and acquaintances. And have those suffered as a result of the politics in China and in the U.S. being what they are? And How does that impact the work of journalists and diplomats and others?
2: Um, I do think that, I mean, I would say that a lot, there was already a chill um, in some of the relationships between Western journalists and sources starting even before the tensions between countries became much greater in the last couple of years. Um, Even when I was there in 2016, um, because of the tightening around journalists and also the tightening in the political discourse in the party and among say on campuses and things we would get we, there would be more reluctance among some sources who were academics or analysts or people who had insight into the operations of the party or the government to speak with us even whether it's off the record or on the record it became much harder to get sort of to have people speak on the record about the perceptions of what was going on and i think that that's gotten even um harder or much worse now um, Then I would say that in the last few years, you know, the growing tensions between governments and also the growing accusations of things like espionage and um, and sort of what whether Chinese and Americans were playing dual roles working for government while, you know, also working for an institution like a scientific institution or, or an educational one or a journalistic one became did influence like the amount of contact that people have with each other because I think that there people on both sides became much more wary of thinking oh they might end up being perceived as a spy or um, are they passing information to the wrong people will they be especially in China will they with the security um, you know agencies pull someone in and detain them and question them just for having contacts with Western journalists or with diplomats I think that became a much greater issue. And so it did send a chill through some of these relationships.
0: How does it affect then the types of stories you can do or the depth of those stories?
2: Um, I think it's, I think it depends on the story. I think there are still many realms of coverage where this doesn't impede coverage as much. I think when you're writing about um, politics, that's where you really feel it because you, it's harder to get candid assessments I think um, from various people about what's really going on in the systems. And, and it's very, very difficult to get them to speak on the record, as I said. So you see less voices of people who have a nuanced understanding of these things in the, in the newspaper, or on the internet, you see, um, which of course then leads to like the unnuanced voices dominate the conversation online <laughs> yeah. and there's less of the, <laughs> yeah. less of the people who really know what's going on being involved in the conversation online.
0: Um, So I'm going to move to some questions from the audience. Um, We got lots of questions beforehand um, and we're getting questions now. Um, So here's one. You were in China for nine years during a period of gigantic changes, even by Chinese standards. And can you tell us about two or three of the most significant accomplishments you witnessed?
2: Um, I would say that, I mean, obviously within uh, the cities, there was a, big change in the lifestyles of a lot of middle-class or upper middle-class Chinese, the sort of the boom in the city, in the sort of East East coast cities like Shanghai or um, Guangzhou or Beijing, I think was extraordinary. Um, And I, you know, when I arrived in 2008, that was very obvious, but by the time I left in 2016, 2017, it was um, that, you know, was very anyone coming to China could not um, fail to notice that. And so you saw things like um, the high speed rails, for example, connecting cities, even though there was also a large, very fatal accident involving one early on. But, But almost anyone coming to China would be impressed by something like that. And, you know, if you're working in China and living in China, you also can't be can't help but be impressed by systems like this, because it's making your daily life a lot easier. So I would say that that these sort of um, this change in lifestyle and in ease of movement um, among people, sort of in China, um, among a certain class of people, I would say that just like in America or in other countries, there's like great inequality in China. So there's a certain subset of people where their lives became much easier, and it's not a small number; it's a large number.
0: Yeah. 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 Um... Another question, how accurate and troubling is the narrative that we've entered a new Cold War between the U.S. and China? And how do we report on this?
2: I mean, that's something we're all feeling out. Like, this is my, my current beat is um, writing about diplomacy and foreign policy. And so this is something we're feeling out now and that we've had a lot, lot of discussions on within our newsroom. And um, my, pers- my take on it is that the, the phrase... Cold War is inaccurate in terms of describing what we're in right now with China because I would say there's definitely strong competition, there's strong wariness from both sides and there's much more confrontation, hostility and in the rhetoric, to, in the diplomatic rhetoric um, than there was say four or five years ago but um, the economic systems are still deeply intertwined this, never ha- this was never the case with the Soviet Union during the Cold War and um, you see countries around the world wanting to uh, work with both countries to a certain degree, you know, it might go back and forth. um, Sometimes, especially with Europeans and China, like sometimes they'll be hot on China, sometimes they'll be cold on China, for example. But you do see like no one really wants to completely shun China. It's you don't see the world separating into these spheres of political influence the way that you saw happening during the Cold War.
0: Is the Biden administration sending mixed messages about China? <laughs>
2: um, it, it, that's something that I think that they're trying to calibrate their approach carefully. And I don't know, you know, it. We'll see whether it succeeds or not. I don't know if it will. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, and Biden said this during campaign. He said, you know, I think China is a formidable competitor. We'll have to confront and compete with China. Um, in many areas, but he said there are also these areas of cooperation, like climate change, um, health security, and other areas where we need to cooperate with China. That, that's a different message than what President Trump was saying. So I think that there was a there is a contrast between the two, and I think in the last few weeks you've really seen that playing out, where you had a greater greater talk of climate change um, and how the two countries might work together on global climate policy, but at the same time. The Biden administration, for example, in the State Department and Secretary Blinken, they've stuck by the determination of genocide, for example, um, against the Uyghur population in Xinjiang that the Trump administration had reached near the end of its, its period.
0: Another question is whether China is spreading disinformation in the U.S. And is that so? And if, if so, in what ways and who are they trying to reach?
2: I mean, the Chinese, to me, it's fairly obvious, you know, what the Chinese media or propaganda apparatus is. I mean, it's the, you know, China Daily, the English language newspaper, there's CGTN, the English language network, and these are operating in the US just like radio Sputnik does for Russia, for example, um, and or Russia today. So the, um, to me, it's fairly obvious, and they're trying to shape perceptions of China trying to. You know, put on much more positive perception of the country than might be portrayed in the Western press. Um, It seems pretty um, to me. I it doesn't see it still lacks you know a certain level of sophistication. I think that there could be levels of propaganda influence that they could engage in in their media messaging that they haven't quite done yet. Um, The and so like I'll just leave you that. I think that there are some obvious ways in which you're trying to influence Western perceptions. There has also been talk about whether, you know, there's been different other things like scientific endeavors that Chinese scientists try engage in with American scientists and whether the government, the Chinese government is involved in those. There are um, discussions of whether they're trying to woo local American politicians and trying to engage with state, state level politicians. Those aren't that widespread yet. So I don't think that that's happening Widely. I think that it could lead to like, you know, what we might ca- call a red scare. Um, but I don't right now, I don't perceive it as a widespread phenomenon.
0: Here's another one, and that's what's China's aim and its foreign policy? Like, what do the 2020s have in store for China? What's its goal? Um,
2: that's a I mean, that's a good question. That's what everyone's trying to figure out right now, <laughs> in, at least in, the, in certain circles in Washington. I mean, I would say that one big aim is to re-establish, sort of firmly reestablish China as a dominant, the dominant power in Asia. And I would say that that includes, um, and this is where it really butts up against the U.S. goals. Like, and that, that means military power also, because I think that um, very few U.S. American policymakers or strategists, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, want to give up the notion that the U.S. is the dominant military power the Pacific region. I think that that comes from many factors, including, you know, what happened with Japan in World War II. Um, So I think the U.S. is very set in trying to, generally set in trying to maintain that. And China wants to be the dominant military power in the Pacific. I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, I would, some people might push back against that assertion, but I don't think there's any doubt about that. And then the other big part of that that's related is Taiwan and that China wants to be reunified. It wants Taiwan, you know, it makes this argument that Taiwan's been part of China for a long time. And there are other people that argue, that might argue history doesn't really show that to a large degree, but they want Taiwan to um, be reintegrated or assimilated back into China. And so most Taiwanese don't want that. Um, and, And America so far has tried to rhetorically push back against um any notion that china might you know china's assertions of that
0: so this leads uh, nicely into one of the questions here which is do you foresee a future armed conflict between the u.s and china
1: <laughs> that
0: um, won't ask the second part right. of that question but because the first part is uh such a shocking one
2: right i i mean that's something that i mean countries rarely went war and then when it happens like it sometimes it's a surprise um and you know a lot of this 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 question arose a few years ago in at least in Washington circles when there was a book called the Thucydides trap that was written or destined for war and talked about what's known as the Thucydides trap it was written by Graham Allison a longtime U.S. official and a Harvard professor about um sort of saying a rising power and a status quo power or established power will it's all uh, it's very likely that they'll end up in in a war situation um I'm not sure that that's the case, partly because of what I said earlier about that this isn't the same as the Cold War, that these econ- these very large economies, the first and largest economies in the world are deeply intertwined in many ways. And even though they're in the Trump administration, there's a lot of talk of decoupling these economies. And I think that even the Biden administration, they recognize that at least that some of that talk around supply chains and decoupling was valid or was something to explore further. In general, it's very difficult to really, um, you know, take, pull these two economies apart. There's like so many linkages. You look around, you look around what you have, your iPhone in your pocket, look around all the things that you have in your house, the, the way you go about your life. And it's very difficult. Um, it would be very difficult if the economies are completely pulled apart. And so I think that that's one thing that, you know, hedges against the idea of war. And also there's the other thing, which is the nuclear deterrent. And I think that that was true during the Cold War, and it's still true now. Both powers are nuclear power, both nuclear powers, and there is an argument that these nuclear warheads might act as a deterrent.
0: Um, Here's a question about identity. Uh, Did your ethnic Chinese and national American identities factor into your reporting in China and alter in any way your self-identity? And if so, how?
2: Um, I mean, that's a very complex question. Um, Let me answer that sort of somewhat on an operational level, which is that I found that because I was, you know, Chinese and um, could speak to a certain degree two different um types of Chinese language Mandarin Cantonese then I could move around to different parts of China very easily um, whereas I think someone who didn't have that background that ethnic background would find it harder be- just because people wouldn't look at me twice when I would enter a village like they would just I could just enter start talking to people very casually um, it wouldn't be like sort of who I was would not be as much of an issue um, if I were a non-China, if I were non-Chinese, for example. Um, and so I think that made things a little bit easier in terms of getting access to certain places. Um, I could probably slip through, there were many times I remember when I could drive past police checkpoints and just be sitting up in the car without having to sort of like hunker down in the back and sort of hide myself. Um, that so I found I found that that gave me greater access to places and to people, and that people's perception of me, oftentimes they would just think I was from another part of China where I had a strong Cantonese accent. Like I came, I was from Southern China because I always spoke with a strong Cantonese accent since I grew up speaking Cantonese with my parents, and they would think that oh he's just a su- like someone from Southern China. Like they wouldn't think oh he's some <laughs> foreigner and let's figure out who he is and what he's doing here. So.
0: Um, A question about source protection, Edward. What measures did you use to protect sources in China? Um, Especially those that were being critical of the government. Did you take different precautions than you would as a journalist here in the U.S.?
2: Yeah, it would be very on a case-by-case basis um, and on sort of whether, you know, what kind of risks the source wanted to run and whether we perceived that they knew what the risks were. Sometimes you would run into sources who were kind of naive about um, the fact that they were contacting Western journalists and that um, they were naive about what the consequences could be for them. So we would try and inform them and take certain measures like set up meetings in um, very discreet areas, sort of discreet meetings in areas where it'd be hard for people to watch or to know that we were meeting. We would, I would try not to use um, the social media app WeChat to contact uh, these types of sources, because WeChat is easily monitored by security agencies. So uh, there would be other ways in which we would have to try and contact sources to set up meetings. And then, it, and then we would try and make every effort to meet face-to-face, for example. Um, the, then there were other cases where sources, there were, I did run across some sources in my time there that knew fully, fully knew what the risks were, and they didn't really care. They sort of might have been in prison before, They felt that maybe the cause that they were representing was stronger than um, whatever uh, might befall them. And so they wanted to meet out in the open. They wanted to approach me very openly. And if I felt that they fully perceived the risks, then I would give them the benefit of doubt because like I didn't want to be sort of the Westerner who came in and tried to teach them about what the risks in China were. I felt that there were certain people who knew better than me what the risks were.
0: Um, did you feel like your phone calls were monitored by someone all the time? I mean, is that the case? No,
2: I never felt that they were monitored all the time because I, there were many times when I would talk to people or have meetings with people and that some of this was done over the phone. And if they were monitored, then I'm sure someone stepped in and sort of stopped that meeting (laughs) from happening or like if it was being set up over a phone call or something like that, and, (laughs) or they would have called or like the foreign ministry would have called me and said, oh, we know you're working on a story on this. So we went to warn you about that. That never happened. And so I don't think um, they're monitoring it all the time. I mean, I think there's a misperception about sort of like the power of governments and how they monitor people. I think they can definitely scoop up tons of data, but whether someone's like going and listening to all the (laughs) recordings or monitoring something real time, constantly 24 hours, is a misperception i think
0: so interesting because i was doing um a tough story on corruption in india and um trying to figure out whether my sa- you know if i should worry about my safety so i had talked to a top police source in mumbai asking do you think my phone calls monitor are being monitored do i need to worry do i need to worry about my safety and he said oh yeah i'm sure you're fo-. and I, I was doing it on sort of Robert Vadra, was like the son of uh, the leading Congress party member at the time, Congress was in power in India. Anyway, the police officer said they were definitely gathering, listening to my calls and gathering data, but they were gathering so much data from so many people that there was no way they would be able to right. um, put it together and interpret it. So mm-hmm. as long as I wasn't viewed as a tool for anyone, right. um, I was safe. And mm-hmm. they Anyway, that was just in- interesting and played into sort of the stereotype of India of being quite disorganized. You know, they would right. be gathering it, but figuring out what it meant would take some time.
2: Right. And I think that's true both in China and the US too, that they can scoop up the data. Like there's technology, they have to, to scoop up all this data, but they have to sift through it. And they also, and so like if you're someone who comes on their radar for a very specific reason, like they know you're working on a story about the party leader, for example, an in investigative story, they might start scrutinizing you. But if they don't, you don't come on the radar for that, then you, they're not going to be sifting through all the data looking for what you're talking
1: about.
0: Um, just one more uh, uh, question um, um, about sort of journalism in China. Like what kind of access do reporters have to the situation in Western China?
2: Uh, I mean, there's different parts of Western China is large. Um I don't know if you're the readers asking about Xinjiang in particular, which is the part of Western China. My, they,
0: they don't mention it, but my guess is yes. Right.
2: So Xinjiang's where, you know, the Uyghur population, there's a large population of Uyghurs and as well as Kazakhs and other ethnic minorities, many of them Muslims. And this is where there, there have been internment, large internment camps and other forms of repression. So um, it's been very difficult for journalists to get access to those towns. I mean, we've obviously have seen great reporting from that area and journalists have gotten in, um, and a lot of journalists have done some of the reporting from going outside China and talking to Uyghurs or Kazakhs who have left China and interviewed them outside of the country and pieced together things. And they've used, also used technology like satellite imagery to look at, um, you know, Ma, the destruction of mosques or internment camps being built. So I think that they've done this in a very piecemeal manner and put together strong stories. But, you know, like when there have been different times in my experience with China, I started going there in the 90s. And in the 90s, I would just show up in Xinjiang in a town and no one would think twice about me. And I would, there would be tons of foreigners staying in hotels and just going around. And then it's become much harder since then. And very, very hard for journalists. If, they, if you're traveling with a journalism visa, then as soon as you land in town in Xinjiang and the poli- and you get on the radar of the police, the police will start, I think, trying to track you.
0: Um. Sort of a last question, and this sort of is a question that um, is not from the audience, but is from the journalism school mm-hmm. and from me. And that is: um, you know, when you were here at Berkeley Journalism, um, you took um, a course on reporting in China and you traveled to Hong Kong to do reporting. Can you just talk a little about sort of how your training and the classes you took? influenced the journalist that you became and sort of the area of coverage you ended up specializing in?
2: That's a good question. I mean, the, this goes back to your question about sort of like the foundational expertise that people bring in. I wouldn't call myself an expert, but um, but, you know, at least I was from an earlier age. I was trying to build a base of knowledge about China. And part of that an important part of that was taking this course, when I was at Berkeley um, Journalism School with a couple of very um, smart professors and teachers who we spent an entire semester reading about the nuances of the history between China and Hong Kong. This was in 1997, right before the handover um, between the Chinese government and the British government um, on Hong Kong. And so the um, we spent a lot of time reading about the history and about the different, about different issues involved in this transition of governance and about the you know about what it meant for each for each country especially what it meant for Beijing and what it meant for people in Hong Kong too. And I think that having you know the training to spend a lot of time delving into a very specific historical issue and then going there on the ground to report and do lots of interviews and writing and at that time I was writing a lot of freelance stories for publications. Um, like the LA Times and the San Francisco Chronicle based on this class and my trip there that greatly helped um, both at the moment understanding the historical moment but also in the long run understanding you know what what China China's goals um, in in its different policy moves um, it's uh, what its leaders want um, what people on the ground like especially people in Hong Kong want it like a lot of this fed into a much greater and more nuanced understanding of China later. Just taking one, a, a single class at, at Berkeley was important for that.
0: So Edward, thank you so much. Um, it's been just such a pleasure um, being able to talk to you about China and your experience as a foreign correspondent and what you think of our evolving US-China relationship. Um, And I'm going to invite back Bak Chan to um, say a few words and close this event. So um, welcome back, Bak, and I'll let you address the audience.
1: Okay, nice to be back. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to to Ed and and Gita for this informative and insightful dialogue. Uh, Excuse me. And I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. As I mentioned earlier, Berkeley Journalism recognized that there may be a gap in terms of breadth and quality in US journalism coverage of China. They are resolved to create a China centric program at Berkeley Journalism. This program will offer student in depth training on China, so they will learn to cover the country with nuance, sensitivity, understanding and accuracy in their future careers. There are three elements to this program. Number one, China class, just uh, a full semester class on China will be offered, including a field trip to China. Many documentaries and reports will be published for public consumption upon class completion. And number two, student scholarships, recipients are required to take classes in Chinese culture, history, and contemporary social economic environments to enhance their skill set. And number three, National Journalism on China contest. Prizes will be provided for an annual contest open to all journalism students in the US on a China themed topic. These are exciting plans indeed. We will share more specifics with you in a, in a couple of weeks. And uh, any support from you as Cal alumni or friends to enhance this exchange and relationship uh, uh, between the two largest economies in the world will be greatly appreciated. Until then, on on behalf of the uh, CA Chinese chapter and the Berkeley Journalism, thank you very much for your participation. And by the way, if you missed part of the program, you could always catch a recording on our website or on YouTube please feel free to share that with your friends as well. Have a great evening.
0: You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.